This morning we got a message I'm excited about because it's simple. We've had a lot of complexity, it feels like, the last few weeks. This morning is simple. I'm just kidding. We're not going to go into all those equations. I'm not kidding about it being simple. This is going to be simple. You may come to this place, to this point, this time, this day. You may be online watching. Um, and maybe you've asked the question about, if you grew up in the Bible Belt, you've heard uh, over and over about getting saved and what that means. Uh, and maybe you've questioned, uh, maybe, maybe you're coming from a different walk of life. Maybe you're coming and you got, you got saved and baptized when you were 11 or 12. Or maybe you got saved in college. Maybe you got saved as an older adult. Maybe you got saved and didn't get baptized till later. But maybe you've had these questions and question yourself, am I really saved? Or maybe you're coming here and you've never, you know, professed, you've never given your life to Christ, you've never been what your neighbors would say as saved, and you've wondered, well, what does it take? What does it mean? How do I get saved? What does it mean? And in this chapter 10 of Romans, where we've landed today, Paul makes this abundantly clear, how to get saved. He also gives some examples of how not to get saved, all right? And so we're going to talk about that first. And what he gives here are some equations. As I began reading this and, and uh, studied it all week long, these verses, you know, when I'm preaching on a passage, I, I read the, the verses every single day, you know, multiple times and just saying, God, what do you want me to say here? And then I read commentaries and all kinds of other stuff uh, and outlines about these verses. And I kept just seeing these equations popping out um, and the simplicity of the one that he tells us of what it takes to get saved. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to read through these scriptures. We're going to look at three equations that I find here. And they're simple. They don't have all this stuff. I said derivatives during worship service when we were practicing worship. And everybody's like, God, I've not heard that since high school. I don't even remember what that is. We're not going to talk about derivatives. We're going to stick with addition. Everybody good there? Single digit addition and subtraction. All right, that's, that's as far as we're going to go, I think. That's as far as we're going to go. But we're going to look at these verses and see what Paul is telling us here because immediately following chapter 9, which we know we, I talked about the sovereignty of God, like he is the supreme ruler. He, it's at his mercy and grace. Everything that happens is at his pleasure. He is in complete control. You cannot read chapter 9 and debate whether God is in control. That Satan himself, for bad things to happen, has to have permission from God to work. You know, when he wanted to attack Job, he went to God and said, can I go to Job? And we found in Romans 8 that God can use all these good things in Satan's attacks and the trials and the troubles that come into our life because we live in a sinful, broken world. That's man's fault. Adam sinned broke the whole thing it could have been heaven from the beginning but man got prideful and selfish and we all inherited that and it's a broken mess but God said you know what all that mess you're making I'm still God and I can still use it for your good for those that love him for those that are called by his name and he says those he foreknew would put their faith in him were predestined to be glorified like him that he has taken the ownership of your life and soul and heart when you've given it to him. 
He says all that in sovereignty in 8 and 9. It's like, all right, well, what do we have in this? And we ended that in Romans 9 where he said, well, the reason the Israelites, the Jews, had not been saved fully is because they had not had faith. And so he moves the responsibility after saying, I can do anything I want to the Israelites that I rejected is because they rejected me. Okay? And so that's where he comes into in chapter 10. Beginning in 9, we found he was brokenhearted. He was wrecked over his fellow people. He wanted them to get saved. And he was so upset that the Israelites, the Jews, had been, had been studying God's word. They had had all the blessings of the temples and the laws and the rules and, and, and all the things God had chosen. They had missed him when he walked on earth. At the end of chapter 9, they said he, they stumbled over the very one, God's presence with them in Jesus Christ. They stumbled over him and didn't realize who he was. In chapter 10, he starts this way, kind of referring back to the beginning of chapter 9. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. He still has this heart that he wants them to get saved, and he begins here to lay out how they can be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. So here we have our first equation, all right? Our first equation. Subtraction. Y'all good with subtraction? Y'all, I got some emojis on here. Y'all know what emojis are? Y'all texting? That's zeal. First he says, they had zeal for God, right? If you go back and look. He says, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. They were excited about God. If you've ever watched The Chosen, uh, the miniseries, if you've not watched it, you need to watch it. It's really no excuse that you haven't watched it yet. Go watch this thing. It may not be perfect, but it will open your eyes to be able to see and sense the reality of what Jesus dealt with in his day. All right, you need to go watch it. But you see in there, like these, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the, 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 the Jewish leaders were zealous about God. Even, even Paul, the person who wrote this letter to the Romans, was zealous for God when he was murdering Christians. He says they were zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. So they had zeal. They were excited. I mean, absolutely. Wow, about God. Okay? But they were missing something. They were missing knowledge. And, and, and I'm not saying they were, they were stupid because they were brilliant at the law and the code and the rules and the rituals and the traditions and all those things. They had that knowledge, but they were missing complete knowledge. It was kind of like this if, uh, you know, spring break is sometime next week, I think, for us. And I said, hey, uh, Rosie, Beth, we're going to go on a trip. We're going to go to a beach we've never been to. We're going to go to an island we've never been to, Tybee Island. All right? And I said, I'm so excited. Here are the pictures. Here's what it looks like. I'm so excited. We're going to go. And we get in the car, and everybody's, everybody's excited. We're going to the beach, and I don't turn the GPS on. I never go look for the I just literally get in the car. I don't use my memory because I could probably get close to Savannah, maybe a couple of interstates, but I doubt it. But I don't even do that, all right? I'm just going to get in the car and start driving. And every time we stop and eat lunch, I'm like, yeah, we're going to Tabby Island. 
and then the night comes and we never reach a coast and we're in Pennsylvania somewhere. But I'm still so excited. I'm telling the people we stopped to see, we are going. I'm excited. You see, that's what the Israelites were doing. They were so excited about something. They did not have the complete knowledge. And you will meet people who are excited about God. They are full of zeal. They will run the aisles. Okay, I'm not saying everybody that runs the aisle does not have knowledge and isn't saved. I'm saying there will be some who have zeal, but not complete knowledge. And this knowledge that, that, that Paul is talking about here is not this type of knowledge, factual knowledge. It was experiential knowledge. They had not experienced True relationship with God. They had not experienced the relationship with Jesus Christ. There's not enough zeal, excitement, passion in the world to get you to your destination if you're on the wrong road. All right, so, so don't get caught up in, I've got to be excited to get there. You, that is not enough in and of itself. No matter how excited I am about or zealous about the destination, if I don't know the way, if I'm not following the way, if I'm, in, I'm going north and the destination is south, it doesn't matter how excited I am. Eventually, my kids are going to hate me. Right when we end up, we're just going to go to Niagara Falls or whatever. You have to know the way. So they had zeal, but they were lacking complete knowledge about who Jesus was. They had not experienced it. Romans 10.3, Paul says, since they did not know, so that's the, that's the first equation that does not work, zeal minus knowledge, all right? So you, you, you don't want to do that. Maybe zeal plus some knowledge and experience relationship is a pretty good thing, but we're going to get to the real equation. Here, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Verse 4, it says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Let me back you up to the end of chapter 9 and read this for you. What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel who, pursue, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They pursued it not by faith, but by works. And we see this battle going on. We see another equation that does not work. That's works. That's trying really hard. Another subtraction minus relationship. And I know that's the little emoji you send to your sweetie pie honey bunch. But it's also representing right now a relationship between you and God. Okay? So works, working as hard as you can, does not guarantee salvation. It cannot earn you salvation. And this is what the Jews had tried to do. I want to give you just some examples. Um, first, let's talk about rules. In America, we got some crazy ones. I found this Twitter page called Crime a Day, and they, they would tweet these, these, these things that are on the books 
that are literally federal laws or regulations. All right. These are literally, you can go to jail for these things, okay? Or you can get penalized some way, fined, whatever. All right, are y'all ready for a crime a day? This is what you got to, this, this is what we got to live up to in America to be perfect. What fraud was perpetrated on the public to need this law? I'm not going to read all those. Uh, 21 U.S.C. Section 333 and 21 Code of Federal Regulations Section 102.39 those two make it a crime to sell onion rings resembling normal onion rings, but made from diced onion without saying so. I mean, are you all just living in fear when you get your onion rings? About fraudulent onion rings. These codes make it a crime to say something so annoying to someone that it makes them hit you in a national forest. And there was a nice reply on that one that said, can I live 365 days in a national forest? In other words, saying they're around people that annoy them all the time, so they'd have a right to hit them. Uh, this one said, made it a federal crime to attempt to change the weather without telling the Secretary of Commerce. What? I want to know what happened that the legislators and the regulators got together and said, we've got to have this one on the books, all these people trying to change the weather. Make it a crime uh, to take home milk from a quarantined giraffe or any animal that chews the cud. This is my favorite one. I got a letter here I'm going to read. This was just last week. Uh, you know, it was Pi Day a week ago. You know what Pi is. We're getting into all kinds of equations, 3.14, uh, March 14th. But anyway, it's Pi Day, so they shared this, and... Um, the, the federal agency that oversees, I guess, the Federal Drug Administration, they put this proposal out that they're going to revoke the standard of identity and a standard of quality of frozen cherry pies, okay? And so the, the guy who made this page, he wrote this letter to provide comment to the FDA on the regulations that relates to frozen cherry pies. You all okay if I read it? I'm just going to read it for a minute. I write in my capacity as the creator and actual human person behind a project called Crime A Day, which has been counting every federal crime on the books, books one each day since 2014. As the de facto internet authority on silly laws and regulations, I hope to offer some insight on the notice of proposed rulemaking titled Frozen Cherry Pie, proposed revocation of a standard of identity and a standard of quality dated December 18, 2020. On July 6, 2015, Crime Day posted its first frozen cherry pie crime, namely that the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, in combination with 21 Code of Federal Regulations, Section 152.126, makes it a federal crime to sell a frozen cherry pie that's less than 25% cherries, by weight, of course, without a warning label saying it contains too few cherries. It was a big hit, that post was. A few years later, Crime Day posted another federal cherry pie offense. This time, it was Section 152.126A3. Uh, it's code Unforgiving Restriction on Calling a Frozen Cherry Pie a Frozen Cherry Tart if its diameter exceeds four inches. Again, it was an instant audience favorite. In the nearly seven years of running this project, I've had the distinct honor of learning directly from the American people which parts of the U.S. Code and Code of Federal Regulations they find funniest and most absurd. 
They tell me all the time, and I can say without reservation, that these cherry pie crimes are among the best content. In fact, when this very notice of proposed rulemaking to revoke the cherry pie rule was announced, followers of the project made sure I was aware of it by incessantly sending the news to my attention. Incessantly. Aside from the points already raised in the proposed rulemaking, I would offer the three following comments in favor of revoking the frozen cherry pie regulation. Here we go, the last paragraph. First, the reactions to federal cherry pie law that I have observed assure me that consumers who buy an under-cherried pie will simply stop buying that pie as they presumably already do with under-blueberried, under-appled, and under mitzmeated pies, which have no comparable pie regulations. Second, the uniform reaction of amusement and bewilderment to the existence of this particular rule would appear to indicate a lack of widespread concern over cherry pie frauds. But third and finally, any federal regulation that permits a criminal conviction for a cherry pie violation, however unlikely, seems to be a good candidate for revocation. Cherry pies, frozen cherry pies, you gotta be careful about frozen cherry pies. The Jews have many similar rituals, rules, and codes. I want to get to what I'm trying to tell you. Is they had some, some things, uh, and I just, they had a, a book that was later printed called the Mishnah that lists so many of these rules. And many of them were the oral law, things they'd made up. They'd added to God's word. They'd added to the, the laws that were given to Moses. And it was, I mean, it was things a person should not make a fixed threshing floor within his own property unless there are 50 cubits in each direction. Uh, a tannery may only be set up on the east of the town. One may set it up in any direction except for the west. And it may be, I mean, this is a huge book of just like code after code of rules and, and, and laws. And what Paul is saying is they've taken all these rules, these regulations, through religion. Through religion. And I want to caution us on a few things. That uh, we have been tempted and will be tempted as a church to set as rules, traditions, rituals, that begin to what we think and what the Israelites thought would make them more acceptable to God. You'll feel pressure in these things. I'm just going to list a, a few. I'll talk about a few. One is a, a, a dress code. Y'all ever been to a church with a dress code? Everybody's scared. What's Jerry going to say? What's he doing? Who's he talking about? This is, uh, I mean, right, you, you, I still, like Easter's coming up, and I'm thinking, like, I still have this pressure, like, I got to be thinking, where's my best suit, the tie? Like, and literally, in six years of pastoring, I've worn a tie, like, one, twice, maybe. And the reason I do, I don't want us to ever feel like because we put a dress on or we dress up nice for Sunday morning that we are becoming more acceptable to God. 
I think you can go the other direction maybe too and go too far and say, you can wear whatever you want and it doesn't matter. And then you, and you start looking down on people that do wear suits and you think, well, they're not saved. All they care about is the suit. I mean, you can go too far into this, but we should just all stand here and say, modesty is important. You should wear clothes to church. Okay? Modesty is important. That's a different thing. Paul, uh, the New Testament literally talks about a church that would see people who came in and thought they were wealthy and give them seats up front. And they said, whoa, this is not the way this works. It does not matter what people come in wearing, whether it's nice stuff, Goodwill stuff. I probably got this at Goodwill, something here, probably. It doesn't matter. That we will begin to put uh, these extra regulations and codes and expectations, rituals and traditions and things that make us feel more accepting. Got dress code, um, biblical translations. Let's just go all out today. Like, let's just create a war. I'm going to create a war. But we will get so caught up in biblical translation. Now listen, I believe the original Greek and Hebrew inspired words that are on a page are perfect there is no english translation that is perfect you've got to study and understand and do your work okay there were words that we're still finding out about the greek that have new meanings in the last 10 years that we didn't understand 30 years ago that we got to, that we, this will separate us, it will divide, and we'll, we'll become a one version only. We'll get into musical styles, right? I mean, I'm a musician, so I got a style I like, and I got a style I don't like. Uh, and we will say, well, this is the custom, this tradition, well, I like this. I'm only going to a church that does this, and, and, and y'all ain't sung a hymn in two weeks, and we'll get these personal preferences. But if the words of the song are anchored in truth and scripture and they're pointing us to Jesus Christ, we should all find that middle ground and say, you know what, we can just worship together in the truth of these words. Facilities, oh, when we were putting this place in, you know, I had people saying, are we going to have a steeple? You know, like, where are you putting the steeple? It's going to be a church, right? And I'm reminding myself, consider the church is not a building, it's just a place we're going to go and we're going to worship God there on Sunday mornings and through the week we're going to serve the community with it, we're going to love it. And, and, and we begin thinking about what a facility and what a church is and we think of that as a building and we do all these things. Service times, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening, that was, that was what church was for me. Right, the pressure to be there, if you miss one or the other, you're slacking and you're not that close to God. But it's got to be, we might just start having church at 3.30 on Sundays. Y'all want to do that? I'm just kidding. But would it matter? I mean, is church 11 o'clock on Sunday? That's nowhere in the Bible. See, all these things we put on us, those are just extra things that are not even in God's word. That we added on and put this pressure and make ourselves feel a little bit better. But then we go on even further and we take the Ten Commandments and the, 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 the things that Jesus taught us and the real law that's there. And we even apply that to our life. And we try to, to become more acceptable to God by living out the law. And that's what the Israelites were doing. It's what the Jews were doing. They had works but no relationship. And here's what works 
bring you? Nothing but guilt, shame, and eventually death. If that's how you're trying to become acceptable to God, Paul said, we've read it in Romans, that all men have fallen short. That we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says that wages of sin are death. I'm not just talking about physical death. I'm not saying if you, if you wear jeans to church three Sundays in a row, you're going to die. All right? I'm just saying sin in and of itself. And if you put your hope in doing good enough this week to make it to heaven, you're not going to make it. All of these Israelites who were absolutely fanatics about righteousness, Paul said they missed it and they failed. And here come the Gentiles that could care less about righteousness, but they did one thing. They believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, that he was crucified, that he was resurrected, and you know what? Nothing else mattered. Paul said nothing else matters. They believe they have righteousness by faith. And all of you out here going to church and wearing your fancy suits and, 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 and doing the one kind of music and all this, that think that makes you acceptable to God, you've missed the boat. He says works minus relationship is not enough. He goes on, and I know what time is it? I don't have my phone. You're all in trouble. Somebody tell me what time it is. Oh, yeah, I got a few minutes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. In other words, if you go back to the Old Testament, Moses saying, if you do all these, you will live by them. And he goes on to say, this is from Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 30 in the Old Testament. I want to read you how Paul says it here, and then I want to go back and read what the Old Testament said. So Romans 10, 6 through 7 says, But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Deuteronomy 30, uh, the first 10 verses gives this promise to the Israelites that no matter how much they have obeyed God, disobeyed God, and how far they've been cast out, and, and, and they're, they're spread out all over the world because they've, 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 they've turned against God, he says, no matter what, if you turn your heart toward me, I will bring you back together if you trust me. In verse 11, he says in Deuteronomy 30, now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you are beyond your reach. Don't you want to hear God say that to you? It is not too difficult for you beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. 
Friday night, we called and ordered some Mexican food. Y'all ever call Mexican food in? Y'all don't respond. Somebody say. Y'all, nobody here in here eats Mexican food. Okay. Thank you. So we called Mexican food in. They said they were running way behind, and, um, which is rare. Right? It's like usually like this, super quick. And uh, they said it would probably be like 20 or 25 minutes. And uh, when I called, they took my order. They didn't get my name. Um, but we, I think I ran in a grocery store or something, and we ran up there, and I ran in and was waiting to pick up the food, and they asked me my name, and I said, well, they didn't get my name, and, uh, and, and so you know, they were so busy, and he started saying, well, what'd you order? And I was trying to re- remember what I'd ordered, Beth had ordered, and what we got for the kids, and trying to tell him he was looking through all the open orders and the phone orders, and the phone was ringing, and people were at the window, and people were walking up trying to check out. I mean, it was just total chaos. He's like, I can't find it. After I'd waited 25 minutes, right, I'm hungry. You told me 25 minutes. And I waited 30. Thought I was going to be eating. And you don't have the order. Is it going to be another 30? And so I'm super calm and patient. I know they put a new system in. I love the people. I'm like, all right, well, here. So he takes my order and he puts my name in. So I just sit down, and I'm waiting. I walk out, and I tell Beth, I said, it's going to be a bit. I just put the order back in. And, uh, and so I'm sitting there, and I'm waiting. And just a few minutes after that, uh, the girl that took our order, we knew her. She came out, and she said, uh, she just came out and announced and said, order for call-in. And I thought she said Collins. Because Amber and Adam, my sister-in-law, they had ordered food too. And I was like, well, they're coming after me. Great. Their food is out. Mine is not. So I thought she said Collins. I said, they're coming in right now. So she sets the food down on the little shelf. So I sit there another 15 minutes. And I'm just staring at all that food on the shelf. And Amber and Adam are home eating probably. And she walks over and she said, were you calling? I said, well, I didn't give my name. She went, yeah, that, this is yours. This is yours. So our food was sitting there. We had more food coming. Here's what I want you to see. It was right in front of me for 15 minutes. Like so near I could have reached out. And grabbed it. This is exactly what Moses is saying. This is exactly what Paul is saying. You, the, the Jews are trying everything. They're trying to be good enough. You, they're, they're trying uh, to be zealous and excited. And he said, but it's so much simpler than that. They said, it, not, it is actually in your mouth. And in your heart, it is near you. Is, if you've never given your life to Christ, you, you may feel like the Jews did. He's saying you don't have to build a spaceship and go to heaven to find God. You don't have to go out there and try to get him and bring him back. You don't have to search the oceans. You don't have to go into the deep and try to bring him back. It is near you. It is in your mouth, in your heart. He says, if you declare, this is the simplicity of it. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Oh, there are power in those three words. Not just Jesus is Savior, not just Jesus saved me, 
But Jesus is Lord and ruler of my life. I give my life to him. I submit myself to him. If you say it and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Simple equation the mouth plus the heart equals salvation saved from what saved from the penalty of sin that you deserve I mean I don't know all of you but you deserve it because you're human. You've been selfish at some point. You've, you have not lived up to the law. You've, you may have done one thing. You may have never told a lie. I wouldn't even believe that, honestly. If you said, I never told a lie, I'd say, you just told another one. Because <laughs> you've either lied, you've lied by omission, you've cheated, you've done something somewhere. You've fudged a, 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 a timesheet. I don't know. You've done something somewhere. You may be like me that stole the Snickers bar at a double quick when I was eight. But you've done something. And sin comes with guilt and shame. You're saved from the penalty of what you deserve. Christ took it. He, God poured his wrath out on his own son who was perfect, who culminated, who fulfilled the law, who lived up the perfect example to every, dotted every I, crossed every T, and he died. He took your punishment. The penalty we all deserved. But we also find we're saved from the power of sin. That it no longer dominates our life. That there becomes a spiritual birth. A new birth inside of us. And a bit of a war because this spiritual birth, new creation is still in the flesh. And you never achieve perfection, but your life begins to change when you profess with your mouth and you give you the heart. Some people do this. Some people, you're not, they don't get saved. They don't say anything. They don't believe. Uh, they say they don't believe. I mean, that's pretty, pretty not good situation. You'll have some people that do this. There are people here right now. There are people been watching through this pandemic. They've been watching online. They have believed in their heart. God has began to move in somebody's heart in this place. But this is an addition problem. When your heart is really changed, you profess it with your mouth. You tell somebody. And some of you who are believing, who've not stepped up and told your friends, You've not told your spouse. You've not told the church. And you've not said the words. I encourage you today. Profess with your mouth. Some people are shooting it on the megaphone. That Jesus is Lord. But he's not really Lord of their heart.
they believe church is a fun membership group and a good get together and it's great for the kids and and they, and they'll they'll buy the the Hobby Lobby signs and still their heart has not been broken their heart has not been surrendered their heart is not in relationship with God salvation comes with both scripture says anyone I love that Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. It doesn't matter what you're coming from. Uh, I don't care what kind of sinful lifestyle, addiction, divorce. You broke every rule. You never did. You know, you just were just a total mess. Anyone who professes with their mouth and believes in their heart. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. One more, one more equation. Told you we wouldn't go into, we didn't get to multiplication. The formula is not faith plus works equals salvation. Not as long as I believe and I keep doing good and I keep working out and trying hard. The Bible is clear that salvation, that the formula is faith equals salvation plus works. Okay, when your heart is changed, your life changes. You start to bear fruit. It will be evident when you are really changed, the way you care for people, the way you give, the way you're, you're, you're patient, that like all these things that you thought were about how you get saved, and I could never be that good and do all that stuff. You realize none of that is about how you get saved. You just believe and then let God change you, and you begin bearing different fruit, and we're going to see it. I mean, he's getting close to it. When we get to Romans chapter 12, he said, you, the, a true believer submits their life as a living sacrifice, holy and pure. Yes, these things are important. But let us never get so caught up and think they are important for salvation. All you have to do is profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he was resurrected from the dead. That's the changing thing. That's what makes Jesus different from every other God. He was resurrected from the dead. You may be wondering, did that really happen? Like you might be just like a, I want to I know, did that really happen? There's four Gospels in there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different people wrote the accounts of Jesus' life and his resurrection. It has been dug into by historians, uh, atheists, agnostics, and they, they, they have proven to withstand all scrutiny and the accuracy of what is written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The question becomes, if he is resurrected, what are you going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? 
This is a reminder to those of you who've been saved for 40 years. You are not saved because you've been going to church for 40 years. You are saved because of God's grace and mercy and you believed in him. It's a, it's a reminder to those of you who are lost, who, who are not believers, who have never given in, that all you got to do, you don't have to go to church for 40 years, although if you believe and profess, you probably will go to church for 40 years. To give your life to Christ. 